Greetings, I'm Tyler, and this is The Socialized Recluse. My guest this time is this show's second, second appearance, Wallace Strobey, an award-winning journalist and the author of nine novels, including one of my favorite books of last year, Heaven's a Lie. This time, though, we're talking about one of our shared favorite films. My favorite film, actually. It's held that title for the last 20-some-odd years, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. As such, spoilers abound, not only for Once Upon a Time in the West, but also for Wallace's third Chrysostone novel, Shoot the Woman First. So, if you haven't partaken in either, go do so, then come back to listen to us chat about them. Watch, read, listen. As ever, if you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise, my email is TWW at parentheticalrecluse.com. You can check out earlier episodes of this show at parentheticalrecluse.com slash TSRpod. And if you enjoy this and those, subscribe via RSS, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast delivery system. And now, my chat with Wallace. And I'm not sure how I reacted to it. It's really a movie that you have to get into its rhythms and its pacing. In yes. Um, it's a very slow-moving movie. It's, I, I, it's two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, it's not a, sh- a short movie at all. It's uh, Yeah, it, I mean... It takes its time, and, you know, I, I my first time seeing it, I think, was similar to yours. I I didn't make it through that first sequence at the train station. Yeah, I was like, what in the hell is this? What am I watching? And then I, I just remember like one night I was like, you know what? I've got this DVD. I think I bought it on DVD, like, in a you know, one of the bargain bin things or something. And so like, yeah, I'll give this a shot. And 20 years later, it's still my favorite movie of all time. I, I you know, I just hit that rhythm of it and, and found what he was doing. And I mean, I was in music school at the time, so I, I really responded to the score and how it interacted with the film. And I mean, the, that music just stays with me. Yeah. It, and, you know, it's funny because um, good, the bad and the ugly is actually longer. Yeah. But it feels quicker. You yeah. know, it feels much faster. There's a lot packed into it. It is very much, uh, you know, I did go back and read some of the early reviews of it. And Roger Ebert in the Chicago sun times only gave it two and a half stars. He said it was fun, but it went on too long. And, and that, we only didn't know when to quit, which, you know, uh, is true to a certain extent. But I think uh, that's the, part of what we love about Leone. Yeah, and the the New York Times hit it as well, um, and it said the film it said the film was quite bad, but it was always interesting, which is kind <laughs> of a backhanded. Yeah, that's a... New York Times compliment. It's like I liked it, but it it's bad. Um, <laughs> And it said uh, the review, which was Vincent Camby, who was their longtime film reviewer. He was there for decades. Um, he said that the movie is either for the undiscriminating patron or for the film buff. And if you're neither of those, you should stay home. <laughs> which is, you know, kind of harsh. Yeah. And and Time Magazine uh, famously uh, slammed it. And the headline was a TDM and the Tumbleweeds. Oh, Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it 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 is amazing though, just how its reputation has just grown over the years. And but on I, I think, yeah, that, you know, that's home video too. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, first of all, you can first of all you have access to the film, which, except for colleges, every once in a while, you would not before home video have had access to. 
uh, not only that, but you have access to the complete version of it. The American theatrical release, I think, was was 20 minutes out of it. So you had, you know, so you had that on home video, and you could watch it at your own pace. But I do remember showing it to a friend and telling him, you know, I really wanted him to, to, to check out this movie because I responded to it so much. And yeah, halfway through that opening scene where there's no dialogue, uh, he was he was done. He was pretty much done. Um, yeah, my wife made it through. She we watched it for her first time, and she loved the movie. But once she made it through that opening scene, um, it, I think it helped to have me there, being like, "Just trust me, you'll get through. It's okay." Yeah. Well, it, yeah, you know, it's um, it's what they call it's what they would now call a cold open. I mean, no titles at first. Uh, you don't know who these people are. There's minimal dialogue, and it's all. It's three men waiting at a train station. And wasn't, I, I had heard somewhere, like, one of the original plans, I don't know how far it got, was that the three gunmen would have been Eastwood, Wallach, and Van Cleef. Yeah, I've heard that story. Uh, I, I, would, I would find it hard to believe if that was true. It's maybe a joke that Leonie would have had. But that would have thrown everybody out of the movie. I mean, Jack Elam and Woody Strode, who play two of the gunmen, mm -hmm. are familiar from other westerns, but they would not have had the presence of no. Lee Van Cooper, Clint Eastwood, or Eli Wallach. No, uh, and and it would have killed the you know the idea that you know Frank is kind of insulting this guy by having these three to them, you know, n nobody show up. You know, they're clearly bored with everything they're doing. Um. You know, and it, it just I, I just think it would have if, if it was a love letter to movies, that inclusion would have been too much of a love letter to himself. Uh, yeah, true. Uh, but that scene, I mean, the great thing about that scene is there's such a minimal dialogue. Mm -hmm. Dialogue that's there is great. Oh, it's perfect. It's, yeah. Um, like the, the script is like 200, 300 pages, and there's 15 pages of dialogue in the whole thing. Yeah. It's just that whole exchange, uh, Frank, Frank saying us, did you bring a horse for me? I guess we're one horse shy. Yeah. You brought two too many. I mean, it, it's it's almost um, it's almost comical in its terseness, mm -hmm. but it fits perfectly with the film. Yeah, it is. It's, And it just establishes everything. I mean, just right off, uh, I mean, that... Bronson is someone not to mess with immediately. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you don't know who these people are. You don't know who he is. Uh, you have no idea what the context is or where you are. So unless you're really, you know, it's the iconography of it is what's important. What comes across wide empty spaces. It's those, you know, close to those sweaty close-ups. Uh, it's, it's the noises, you know, the, the dripping water, the whining um, windmill, um, the creak of leather. I mean, the sound is amped up way above realistic limits. But uh, and it's 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 very. I mean, it's so very simple. There's you know there's 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 only one or two things because you don't know yet who Charles Bronson's character is or right. why he's there or why he keeps popping in and out. Yeah. Or why he's playing this harmonica all the time. Uh, I love that how he just, he did almost every shot with him. Every time he's in it, he just sort of appears. 
Yeah, no, he's a, he's a force of nature. He's 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 a vengeful ghost. Um, you know, come back and until the until the nearly nearly the end of the movie, you don't know why he's there. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what his issue is. And then it's all explained in a uh, in a flashback with again no dialogue and um, a close up, and then you pull back until you see until you see what he's he's thinking about what's flashing back in his mind. But yeah, I mean, you know, and the thing is, um, going back to those, uh, that first scene, you know, it's almost like three minutes into the film before the credits, before the credits start. And then it's seven minutes of credits because they're stretched out for so long. And they're timed with precisely to a certain shot. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the title of the film doesn't even appear until the end of the film. Right. Which is a device that other people have used. Um, Martin Scorsese used it in uh, Gangs of New York. Yep. Which in some ways is very much patterned on. Uh, yeah, definitely. It's about a time in the West. I, I, now, I, I, having seen it and hearing you say that, I was like, now I see why I love Gangs of New York so much. Um, it, it, something just felt right about it to me. Um, yeah, the other, I mean, like uh, Christopher Nolan did it with most of his films with the title at the end. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, I think uh, Dunkirk was the last film of his I saw. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure all the Batman ones did. Those titles were at the end. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting to you know to look back at Leone's career before this film because this was the last. It wasn't the last film. It was the second to last film for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd started off doing um, doing second unit on Hollywood films that were being shot in Rome. Uh, like uh, he worked on uh, Ben Hur, I think, in Sign of the Gladiator and Last Days of Pompeii. Mm-hmm. And and for he actually he has a little bit of a cameo. He's more of an extra, but he's a little bit of a cameo in um, Vittoria De Sica's movie Bicycle Thieves. Yes. Yep. He's a, he's a priest. You see him for like a fleeting moment, but if you know what he looks like, you can you can pick him out of the crowd. And he was the son of a, a silent film actor. Yeah, both his parents were. Both of his parents, yep. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, and the writing on this film is is an odd mixture of names. Yeah. Uh, Bertolucci, Bernardo Bertolucci, who was, you know, a great director in his own right, classic Italian director. And Dario Argento, who was a critic at the time, but then became this, you know, well known for making these horror films like Suspiria, you know those Giallo films, those yep. Italian uh, murder mystery films. I I love the story that Bertolucci was tell, told about how he met Leone, and like, it wasn't like Argento the um, the projector at a sh- the projectionist at a yeah. Sh- yeah. and Leone kept wanting to know what he liked about his movie, and he said, "I like the way you film horses' asses." Yeah. <laughs> Shooting from behind the horse rather than um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I do, I, I, I did. Um, I, I, you know, the the character of Jill. I, I was going to ask about you know about Leone including her and in, you know his with women, but I did find that really Bertolucci is the reason that she was so central. Is that true? Yeah, it was in uh, Christopher Frailing's uh, biography of Leone. Uh, yes, which I have. I haven't read it in a long time. Yeah, I I had it on the shelf. I pulled it out for this, and he said that uh, Bertolucci said, "I'm still very proud of my contribution. I convinced Leone to introduce the character of a woman for the first time, to accept that character and take her seriously. I worked hard on that." 
Yeah, well, it stands out because I, you'd be very hard, aside from um, a couple of women who are, you know, peripheral to the first three, his mm. first three districts, um, having, you know, uh, the Jill character played by uh, Cody Cardinale be so central to the idea of it, it's hard to imagine the movie without her. Yeah, I mean, she is the she is the heart of that movie. Yeah, how the plot would even work without her. It's funny she had just been in uh, the professionals a couple of years before. Okay. Um, and you know, also you know, a, a big role there, and she looks the same in um, Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. I I loved the line of hers about saying, "I don't look like a poor defenseless widow." Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, she was what what I what I found this time what I thought was interesting was that especially with her is that it felt like Harmonica, Cheyenne and Frank in his horrific way were all sort of mentors to her learning how to become what she needed to be. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. But yeah, no, she but it was interesting to see that 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 for her to become what she needed to be they they had to, she had to be the central part of all of this. And being surrounded by people who knew they were going to die. Yes. Yeah. Whose, whose time is, whose time is up. Whereas hers is just coming in, into play. Yeah. And they have to kind of, I, I, I had written down that they had to guide, guide themselves through their own obsolescence. That's, that's a good observation. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, it is, you know, it ends with, you know, building yeah it ends with you know the the railroad it ends with civilization it ends with community uh it's it's less cons- you know the time of the lone gunman um the lone laconic gunman um is gone it's, yeah you know the the final duel was the final duel yes the final duel between henry fonda and charles bronson which is um i think one of ebert's criticisms of it was that he said that that the final duel was 15 minutes long, which I don't think that's true. I don't think no. it's 15 minutes long. It feels it. feels like it. Sure. Um, and it ha- and again, it has great laconic dialogue at the end um, when Bronson says to him, <clears throat> after he's fond of his character, Frank, he's worked for this railroad baron. Um, and uh, everybody's dead now except for uh, these two guys yep. uh, who are left. And um, <clears throat> Bronson says to Fonda, so you decided you're not a businessman after all. Mm-hmm. Fonda says, just a man. An ancient race. Says, An ancient race. <laughs> you know, had anybody ever spoken in the, in the history of the world, spoken like that in the, in the old West? Um, but, you know, it's, you know, who knows? Um, Maybe they had gotten the, the idea of it across, but they just distilled it down into the main essence of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's, again, it's very much in the tone and the rhythm of the film. Yeah. I mean, and, and rhythm is everything to that movie. I mean, it, it really is. It, like you said earlier, you just have to get into the rhythm of it and let it find, you know, eventually you meet up with it. And yeah, I mean, but the, the laconic dialogue, the, all, all of that. And I, I did love also, you know, jumping back to the, the idea of, you know, them being mentors to her was that, and also in the end, they all accepted who they were. Frank realized he's not a businessman. He's a killer. 
you know, <laughs> and Cheyenne, I still love Cheyenne, you know, turn around, I, go away, I don't want you to see me die. I want you to see me die, yeah, which was cut out of the original American Prince. Was it? Uh, oh, wow. Scenes, yeah, one of the 20 minutes of that, and the long scene at the, with Lionel Stander at the... Uh, like trading post. Oh, I love, I love Lionel. St- I love that scene. I love him. I think all that was, was, was cut on the original. And it's interesting because um, if you read interviews with Leone at that point, after good, the bad, the ugly, which had been tremendous success, you know, all those three, you know, they put those three dollar films out in a very close order. And uh, it's funny because the, uh, the whole idea of the Clint Eastwood character and the man with no name, was basically a construct of the advertising department at MGM. You know, right. those, he does have a he does have a name in those films. Yeah, a different one in every movie. Yeah, he's Joe in Fistful of Dollars. He's Monko and for a few dollars more, and he's he's just Blondie in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. But the idea of the of that that that's the same guy was kind of a construct of the of the marketing department. Um, but you know, those films. So those films. The, the first two, Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More, came out like... Yeah, 65, 66, and 67. Yeah, because they had been held. They had been out already in Europe, and then they had uh, they'd come out in very quick succession. And uh, they were popular in, in Good, the Bad, the Ugly, which had a huge budget, was you know a big hit. And Leone, at that point, wanted to do what eventually became Once Upon a Time in America, Set during uh, Prohibition and about, you know, uh, beginnings of a Jewish gang in New York. Uh, but Paramount, who was going to bankroll, bankroll him, said, no, we want you to do another Western, you know. And he was one of the ones they wanted for The Godfather. That's interesting. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, 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 well, I don't know if you, I did, a, did an episode where I talked with uh, Christina Rice about our love of The Godfather. And I, we, I just can't imagine Leone having done that. I mean, you know. Once Upon a Time in America is excellent as it is. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of Leone-esque mov- uh, moments in it, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know? And certainly um, Coppola saw all those movies, I'm sure. But oh, yeah, sure. I can't imagine, I can't imagine Leone have done that, uh, doing that. But um, it's funny because, um, you know, he did Once Upon a Time in the West, and then he did uh, Duck You Sucker, which is something which called The Fistful of Dynamite. A couple of years later, which is set in um, during the Mexican Revolution, yeah, I think in 1913, maybe. And I think his original idea was that he was going to do after the Dowers trilogy, he was going to do an American trilogy, which would have been uh, Once Upon a Time in the West and uh, Ducky Sucker, and then Once Upon a Time in America. And there's three different periods in American history. And as it as it happened, he did. Um, Ducky Sucker, and then he didn't do another movie, I think, for 15 years. Yeah, it was, yeah. I think what it, Once Upon a Time in America was, what, 84? 84, yeah. 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 And 71 was Ducky Sucker. So, yeah, yeah, it, it was a, I haven't seen that one in a long time. I haven't seen either, you know, Ducky Sucker or Once Upon a Time in America in a long time. Don't know why. I just I've I've watched the Dollars trilogy multiple times. I've watched Once Upon a Time in the West more times than I can count. But I think I've only seen each of those two twice once each. Well, Once Upon a Time, you know, a lot of times when there are films that directors have always wanted to make, they've waited their whole career to make the movie that they want to make. 
uh, sometimes it doesn't always work out that well. <laughs> yeah. I, and also, yeah. I, I think part of it was Leone just felt like such a director of the 60s. Um, uh, that what do you mean? I don't know quite know how to describe it. It's kind of like if the if the Beatles got back together in the eighties, it just wouldn't have worked. And uh, yeah, I see that. I mean, I remember seeing the uh, release version of it, mm-hmm. which was which was chopped drastically. Mm-hmm. I mean, a time in America, um, and it made practically no sense at all for me the first time I watched it. And then I saw the uh, the version that they put out on home video which was the restored version and um that was twice as long and it still didn't make any sense to me (laughs) and i understand that there's even now uh, on home video there's been like a a, another one that's like even a third longer than that and uh i don't really not really confident that watching that one's going to help me either i've got it on blu-ray i haven't i haven't done it yet yeah it's such an odd movie. Um, it, it doesn't have any of that tactile sense that his other films have. That that may be it. That may be what was, yeah. The sweat and the, the, the grime and just, you know, the, the feeling, the um, kinetic sense of it. It all felt too much like the blurred out Henry Fonda coming at the screen. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean, yeah. Uh, have you seen the, you know, the earlier American cuts of Once Upon a Time in the West? No, I haven't. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I, I imagine it when I saw it on TV, that's what it would have been. So okay. if I did see it on TV, yeah, that's what, that's, that's what it was. Uh, I mean, I had, it on, I had it on VHS, the restored version, when it first came out. Um, so I would have seen that, you know, in that great, uh, you know, home video period when all these movies were suddenly available. You yes. Know, it was like unbelievable. <laughs> Um, so then, I, you know, and then I saw that in the uncut version, which I think it was like two tapes, you know, back in those days, it was like two VHS tapes. I love those two tape editions of stuff. That was so great. Yeah. Um, and the same with Once Upon a Time in America too. Mm-hmm. The one I had was a two VHS. Um, so no, I never saw that. You know, when I, when I finally saw the movie, you know, for the, for the first time really off, to, you know, not on TV. It was the extended version, the or the original version, I should say, mm-hmm. and um, and that's the one I fell in love with. Yeah, it. I I think I had just whatever ver- version was the first that came out on DVD was the first time I saw it, so it was probably the restored ver- the first restored version. Um, so I mean, one of the other characters that really stood out to me this time was Morton. Yeah, and I, I, and I realized watching it that Gabriel Frazetti is the only actor who is on my five favorite films list twice. Oh, really? What's the other one? Once upon, well, I'm sorry, uh, Honor, Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, that's right. He plays Tracy's father. No, does he play yep. Tracy's father? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Draco. Yeah. yeah. Draco. Yeah. And a year after, I mean, the roles couldn't be more different. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I just I loved the when Henry Fonda said, "You look like a turtle out of its shell." Yeah. And then you, you know, then his death of you know saying he's going to make it to the Pacific, and then he ends up dying in a puddle. Yeah, yeah. It's like you know, Leone was not above hammering a point home. No, he was, he he was nothing if not obvious. 
<laughs> subtle subtle was never a word you would use with Sergio Leone. Yeah, um, yeah, no, there is nothing subtle about Sergio Leone. And uh, it's funny because once you accept that, though, it's like it's great. You know, yeah. there's, towards the end, right before the duel with um, Fonda and Bronson, there is a close up of Bronson's face that starts out almost from like a medium shot and then just gets closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to only his eyes are on the screen. Yeah. Which, you know, uh, Leone had shots like that earlier in, and in other films as well, but this one is very exaggerated. It's like the camera is going to smash him in the face. So, I mean, it's such a, you know, such a device. It's such a heavy handed device. But again, it's operatic. There's nothing subtle about opera. You know? Right. Yeah. No, he's going full on full bore opera on this. And yeah. there, there's actually a great photo in the Frailing book of them filming the the duel and how close the camera is to Fonda's face. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like right under his hat brim. Well, I mean, one of the things about these movies and and uh, I'm including Good, the Bad, the Ugly in the first the first two dollars films is that you know, they alternate between these wide vistas, these wide landscapes, and these really tight close-ups of the actors, like super tight close-ups of the actors. And, and Leone uses the faces of actors as landscapes. Yes, as geography, yeah. Geography of the faces, you know. Almost sometimes to a comic effect, you know, at the end of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, when they're in the cemetery. And it just cuts from, like, the close-ups of Lee Van Cleef to Eli Wallach to... Uh, to Eastwood, back to Lee Van Cleef, back to Eli Wallach. Yeah, you feel like you're gonna you know, fall over getting dizzy that you're you're going. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you're standing in a circle to start with. But if and anybody the, could do self-parody almost and make it feel not, it's Leone. You know, like you yeah. said, like you once you buy into there. So I, I think it was in Frailing's book they were talking about like how. After Once Upon a Time in the West came out, Leone had all these people, you know, thinking he's this great philosopher or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and the guy is like, if you knew Leone, he's the biggest kid that yeah. ever lived. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's evident in the, in the films, you know, it's um, it's his, as I said before, it's his love letter to American Westerns. He's, he's playing with his toys. Yeah. And to, and fortunately, this time, you know, he got well with. The budget on Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was pretty big too. But with this one, he really got to do it. He really got to. He went. He got to go and shoot those scenes in Monument Valley. No, most of it was made. Yeah, most of it was made in Almeria, Spain, where he'd done the other films. But they did. They did go over and shoot. You know, stuff in Monument Valley, which was like must have been holy ground for him. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Well, didn't they? I I think it was on the documentaries on the, that had come out. The one with like John Carpenter and Frailings in it that they had said that the. Like the budget for the set of the of Flagstone was about as much as the first two dollars movies put together. Or yeah, it's probably true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. probably true. Well, I, I just I I still get chills every time you know when she arrives at the station and then there's that crane shot that oh, yeah. follows her up and over and then the town is yeah oh, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. You know it's funny because if you saw you know if you go back and watch Fistful of Dollars you really wouldn't think that the guy who did that movie would be capable of, you know, once upon a time in the West. Yeah, and, and what, uh, a few years later? Yeah. Very few years later. I think, I think that was 64. And yep. um, so four years. Yeah. You know, 68. And I guess in the, in the U S once upon a time in the West came out in 69. Yeah. 
Interesting, because, it, you know, when it came out in the U.S. in 69 was the same year that The Wild Bunch came out, which is another mm-hmm. essential Western. But it couldn't be more different, you know. Right. Um, the heroics of the West and the iconography of the West are boiled down to their their, their basic savagery in Peckinpah's film. You know, there's there's no romanticism in that at all, you know. Right. Everybody's, everybody's run out of time in that. Peckinpah's punk rock and Leone's opera. I'm sorry? I said Peckinpah's punk rock and Leone's opera. Yeah, that's probably true, yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, but yeah, I mean, he made he made those films, in a, you know, Leone made those films in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Fistful of Dollars is, is a lift on Kurosawa's Yojimbo, mm-hmm. almost beat for beat and scene for scene. And which is a retelling of Red Harvest. Yeah, Red Harvest and a little bit of the glass key probably in there, um, you know, the, the Hammett books. So, yeah, I mean, that that's, it's so bare bones, but the stuff that's in it, there are moments in it that is that are great. You know? Oh, absolutely. There are moments in it that are great. I love The Coffin Maker. Yeah, which is directly from uh, Yojimbo. The dialogue is directly from Yojimbo. And um, and for a few dollars more, is again, it's very pulpy. It's very entertaining. It's very sarcastic. All three of those Dowers movies are very sarcastic. Yes, which is which is not in Once Upon a Time in the West. There's there's a reverential feel to that. That's. I was going to uh, say it's that I, I, earnestness is probably the wrong re- reverential is the right definitely. Um, but I I wonder you know we'd talked about Tarantino's sar- sarcasm. I wonder if that's from the at least partially from the Dollars movies. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the Dollars movies and Clint Eastwood are very much tied into that time period. You know, they are sort of, sort of, um, uh, you know, this, they're sort of rebellious. They're sort of, they play into this, I hate to say the term zeitgeist, but it's kind of true. You know, they, you know, Vietnam War was going on. Uh, people were, you know, authority was being questioned. Um, and the Western is this, you know, this very revered um, American tradition. And here are these, here are these Italian guys having all this fun making these Westerns. But the thing is about, you know, I've seen a lot of Italian Westerns. And like most genres, um, and I think specifically I would say the, uh, you know, the, the golden era of Hong Kong films in like 1987, 1980 to 1990 or something like that. There's a couple films that come out from a great director who would be a great director regardless of what genre he was working in. You know, in Hong Kong, it would have been, you know, John Woo or Ringo Lam or somebody like that. And then there's always, there's a handful, very small handful of, of directors that are great in a specific, specific genre. And then there's a group who are pretty good, who are worth seeing. And then there's tons of dreck, you know? Yeah. And um, with the success of Leone's films, Italy was just putting out like a Western a day, practically, you know, like hundreds of Italian Westerns. Yeah, I mean, that was the, the Italian model of cinema, wasn't it? It was like for a while, like, you know, Swords and Sandals would be popular. Yeah. And they, they'd yeah, have a thousand of those. And then, you know, that would die out. Then they'd go to something else. Yeah. So, if you know, if you're looking for the good, the best spaghetti Western films, you run, you run out, you run through that list pretty quickly. And the, the, the Sergio Corbucci films are interesting. Sergio Salima films are really interesting. 
Uh, and one of the things about Sergio Salima, who, who directed some of the best Italian westerns, is, uh, Italian westerns, is his son Stefano Salima is a very successful oh, okay. uh, Italian TV director oh, right. from Gamora and uh, Romanzo Criminal. And he's done since he's done. Uh, he did a brilliant uh, Italian mob movie called Subura. Okay. It's really good. And again, it's it's very much uh, sort of on a grand scale. And he's since directed Sicario 2. He directed okay. an Amazon movie called uh, Without Remorse. But his his father was one of the was one of the essential. Uh, Which ones did he do? Uh, I, I, th I think Corbucci did Django. Okay. Um, Salima, um, um, not, he may have done, uh, not a bullet for the general and not the, not the really political ones. Um, so it, it, it eludes me at the moment and it's very hard to tell a lot of those movies apart. Yeah. Um, and the same thing was true of, uh, Hong Kong films in the in the um, in the late '80s. I remember discovering those movies and discovering like the films of John Woo, and just saying, and just think, man, how long has this been going on? These these films, are, you know, these films are just full of life and energy. And it's like, you know, talk about operatic. I mean, John Woo certainly learned a lot from Sergio Leone. You know, uh, again, subtlety was not a you know not a John Woo characteristic. Yeah, I would I would not ascribe that to John Woo. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but then you know you see those you see a better tomorrow you see the killer you see bullet in the head you see the hard boiled, and um, then you see some of the Ringo Lamb movies like City on Fire and then you got you then there's you find out that there are literally dozens more of those films and they're not very good because they were knocked out to cash in on on something you know that was unique when it came out. But it's the guys who can turn you know what would normally be commercial dreck into high art. Who, who can turn it into that that make it special uh, yeah yeah or even you know like b plus a b plus movie you know not an a movie but not really strictly a b movie you know? right b plus a minus yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot of american directors there was an american director named john flynn who was very good at that okay. um he did a movie called the outfit which is based on one of the donald wesley christians is that the one with uh when robert duvall played him robert duvall and joe don baker yeah you know? Okay. And he also did a, uh, a really interesting sort of revenge movie called Rolling Thunder. Okay. Which, um, which I saw it first run in the theater, and it, it came out in the late seventies, and it was in the wake of the whole Death Wish, Dirty Harry thing, and it just felt like a vigilante movie. That was about a, a, a POW who comes home from Vietnam, and his family's been massacred, and he. He uh, goes on this revenge spree to kill these guys. And at that time, it very much just seemed like another uh, revenge movie. But in retrospect, and I watched it again not that long ago, uh, it's a movie about toxic masculinity. Okay. You know, uh, and it's very much a, a commentary on what war does to people. Uh, so it, it has a it has it has a power now, which probably you know I'm I'm sure the director and the writer were thinking those things when they wrote it, but, you know, you wouldn't necessarily see it in the film until you spent some time with it and, and thought, it, thought it through. So, yeah, I mean, there are directors that can take what would be a, you know, straightforward um, exploitation script and do something interesting with it. 
Now, I would never say that anything Leone made was exploitation. No. No. Just, but you know, because of what he brings to it, no matter what it would be, um, it would be a Sergio Leone film. There was no way. Right. You know, there, there were other directors, including Peckinpah, in a couple instances, who've had to do movies that were pretty straightforward and barely got anything of theirs into it. Yeah. Um, and that was certainly, you know, well, he only made so few films also, you know, so he get, you know, it's, uh, he didn't have the kind of fall that Beckapah had. Uh, a lot of it was related to his personal life, you know, drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Leone only did like six main, I mean, he, what, isn't there like, he was an uncredited on My Name is Nobody? Uh, Leone? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw that in in the IMDb listing. Yeah, I've never seen that movie. Um, I think they made three of those. Um, those were the more comic. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I, I I'm not sure Salima is the director, but uh, there's a really interesting um, spaghetti western called uh, The Great Silence. Okay. Where the hero is the hero is deaf. Oh. And he's played by Jean Louis Trinidad. Trinidad um, French actor. I'm sure I'm screwing up his name. Trintagno, maybe. And Koskinski's the villain. Oh, wow. Okay. And it's it's set in the uh, it's set in the west in the mountains and it's covered with snow. You can you can tell that Nantino got some of the look for Hateful Eight from this film. Uh, it is extremely downbeat. It's, what, it's called what? The Great Silence? The Great Silence, yeah. All right. I wrote it, that one down. It has, a Morricone, it has an Ennio Morricone score, okay. which is gorgeous. It's a beautiful score. And, you know, the thing about Morricone, and I'm a huge Morricone fan, um, back in 2007, he did his only U.S. concert appearance ever at Radio City okay. um, with a hundred-piece orchestra in <laughs> 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 a, a hundred-piece choir. Um, and he did, they just did, they just did one night and, uh, I went to that. A friend of mine was reviewing it. I was just plus one. Nice. It was interesting to see that music, which came from these, you know, which came from these films being presented in this concert hall, you know, settings, Radio City Music Hall. And, you know, when they had, they had this soprano come out and do the wolf call, you know, the, the coyote calls from Good, the Bad, the Ugly. So it was very, you know, it's it very weird. It was very kind of, you know, strange. But you take certain of Morricone's themes. You know, he, he used a lot of sound, you know, footage, you know, non-instruments or weird instruments, or even instruments that are anachronisms. You know, there's there's uh, electric guitar in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, but you know. A lot of that music, like Jill's theme from Once Upon a Time in the West, is beautiful. Oh, yeah. It's, just, it's a beautiful theme, as is Deborah's theme from Once Upon a Time in America. Yes. Uh, and uh, and I had read once that when he was working with Leone, he would compose these scores, and Leone would say, no, nah, I don't like it. And then he would turn around, and he would sell it to another director who would be ecstatic <laughs> to have a Morricone score. <laughs> I didn't know And then he'd go, he'd go back to work on... Uh, Mark on Leone. And in this case, you know, um, the music was written for Once Upon a Time in the West. The music was written before the film. Right. The shot. Yep. And it was played on the set. Yeah, that was, I, I, you know, the, uh, the, the horse hooves in time with the music. 
was always something that stood out to me. Yeah, the music is so is so important. Well, to all his films, even the even the first two Dower films, the music is is, is very important. There was a, a great quote from uh, Stanley Kubrick in Frayling's book, and apparently Kubrick asked Leone, "Why do I only like Morricone's music in your movies?" Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that was that was of the time, you know, Morricone. You know, before his death, which I think was maybe just last year or a year before. Yeah, a year or two ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he he scored like three hundred movies or something. Yeah, it's an know, insane movie. number. Yeah. Um, and some of those, like the mission, mm-hmm. is beautiful. I mean, it's just it's, I mean, these beautiful. Well, one of my favorites is the Untouchables. The Untouchables, yeah, which is not a movie I'm crazy about, but I love that score. Um, you know, he 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 did a, he did a, he did a lot of stuff. He did all that. And now he must we, have been working fairly quickly. And too. now we know some of it was uh, stuff that Leone didn't want. Yeah. <laughs> Which, um, you know, it's funny because um, I, I watched this documentary on Earl Morris, mm-hmm. and he was talking about the documentary filmmaker, and he was talking about his uh, collaboration with Philip Glass. And that Glass had scored this movie, The Thin Blue Line, for yep. him. And that there was one piece of music missing. And, we're, well, Morris felt there was one piece of music missing. Uh, Glass felt the score was done. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Glass, in an interview in this documentary, says that uh, Morris showed up at his... He was, he was on a concert tour, and Morris showed up on... Um, and is knocking on his hotel room door at night and said, you, "You need to you need to do one more scene for me." And Glass finally agreed to do it. But what it turned out later is that it's a reworking of a piece of music that already existed. Oh, so I you know I think when you hear these stories of composers doing a movie in two weeks, like <laughs> famously Jerry Goldsmith scored Chinatown in two weeks, I think a lot of times it must be because you know these composers have something in their back pocket. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I, I, I had done film music for a while, and that was sort of a general practice. Yeah. What, uh, what do you mean when you say you did film music? I was, I was a music composition major in school. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And so I did, you know, stuff for student films and things like that, and some other okay. stuff. And, and yeah, and so I always, you know, you're always noodling around with stuff and. Sometimes you just, it's like writing. You just sort of find a home for something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so one, you know, we're, we're, I think we're heading towards the end here. But, you know, I, I, you know, so you had, the whole impetus for this conversation was that you had told me that you had lifted a scene from Once Upon a Time in the West for Shoot the Woman First. Yeah. And and that no one had spotted it and nobody had spotted it now. Um so if you're willing to talk about the scene itself, what was it? And um how did Once Upon a Time in the West give you what you needed? Well, you know, I wrote four books about a female professional thief named Chris Stone. Mhm. And um you know, she's a, it was sort of my homage in a lot of ways to Donald Westlake and Lawrence Block and, and the writers that I really, you know, were very influential to me. Um, but, I, you know, I find also that there's moments, certainly there's moments from those books which were had such an effect on me, but there's also a lot of moments 
from films that affected me. There's a Peckinpah reference in my first book, Barbara Bar Kiss, which nobody ever saw, nobody ever noticed. Um, and with Shoot the Woman First, which was the third Chris's Stone book, um, she is cat and, playing cat and mouse with this, um, ex, this brutal ex-cop named Burke. And she's got some money that he's some stolen money that he wants to recover and he wants to, he's going to kill her. And I, at the end of the book, I had, I did not know how it was going to end. And then the, he was just going to drive away at one point, you know, and, um, and then I thought, no, he's going to, he's going to like need to settle this for himself. You know, he needs to go back and he needs, he's going to kill her just because he doesn't want to want this hanging over his head. And he thinks that she's punked him in some way in respect. So I needed them to have a confrontation which made sense and which explained without having to stop and, and explain it, which would explain in its context what those characters were thinking. And that drew me back to um, that last scene in uh, close to the last scene in Once Upon a Time in the West between Henry Fonda's character and Charles Bronson's character, um, where he says, you know, he came back and um, Fonda says something like, yeah, you know, you know, I had to. And so that became, that was a way for me to capture the emotion of the scene in the book, which I knew, but did not have a way to get that, to translate that. Okay. So if I, so I, so I was, I'll say it's a homage. Um, that's what it needed. It needed that moment where these two characters who have been, you know, matched are, are looking at each other and knowing that one of them is going to die. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what I needed. And that's exactly what's in that scene. I mean, and it's done so beautifully in the film. Um, you know, I don't do that very often, but in this case, um, it, it was, it was, it was just what I needed. Yeah, it was a perfect but way to do it. Nobody's ever noticed it. Nobody has ever noticed it. Nobody's ever picked up on it. Well, I'm I'm glad I was able to for this interview. So, <laughs> uh, I, I I on that Henry Fonda scene though, I do love a line in there that I had missed was when he said, you know, after he said, "I knew you'd be back" or whatever, and he said, "I or I thought you were a I thought you were a businessman," and and he says. Morton could handle you still being out there. I can't. Yes, that's it. Yeah. That is exactly what I was trying to get at. He cannot, he could never be a businessman. He could never be Morton. And he just accepted it right there. Yeah. You know, as traditional as, the, as it is in many ways, um, it's also kind of transgressive. I mean, yeah. Henry Fonda kills a little kid. Well, that introduction of Fonda is just one for the ages. Yeah. Um, you know, with those guys in the dusters. And it's funny, we mentioned John Wu earlier. The dusters thing, I mean, he used, you know, he gave Chow Yun-Fat a, 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 a trench coat and, uh, you know, like a long long coat in three of the movies he made with him. I always thought that was a direct reference to the dusters. In, uh, yeah, it wouldn't uh, surprise me. It's my time in the West, yeah. So, I mean, let, let's kind of step back to the broad here a little bit, but what is to you Leone's biggest contribution to cinema? The operatic instinct. Um, the, 
the ability to writ large mm-hmm. and make it and still make it work. I think, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying that. I know what it, I know. Like, like, like to paint on a grand scale, but still yeah, get the small bit. Scale, yeah, um, and not to be afraid to go over the top. Yeah. And to be able to measure that, because it's really difficult. There are moments in all those films and where he's very, very close to going over the top. Very, yeah. very close. And in, in um, I think it, I think he does in some scenes in Once Upon a Time in America. I think, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that the the, uh, the restraint is not there that it was in some of those other films. Although, again, restraint is not a word you would really use too much for, for Leone, but... It's 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 something that's simultaneously um, traditional and surprising, you know. Um, it's, yeah, it's certainly, yeah. You can make a list of American films that th- there's bits of in Once Upon a Time in the West. Certainly, Johnny Guitar. There's a lot yeah. of that, and you know, the, it is a Sergio Leone movie. I mean, <laughs> if if you didn't know anything about, if you just saw the movie with no credits or without knowing anything about it if you had come down from another planet and somebody showed you once upon a time in the west you would say that's a sergio leone movie yeah and there were people that tried to imitate him and a lot of the filmmakers in uh yeah who were making spaghetti westerns tried to imitate him and it's a very it's a very fine souffle you know it's yes yeah. all to keep in to keep, keep in the air yeah. It's you know, great chefs can turn any recipe into something amazing, and he was a great chef. And yeah, yeah, that that was, I, I you know, I I was interested in Leone's biography, and you know that he basically grew up in from silent film up through the seventies and eighties. Yeah, and I mean, I wonder if that is at least partially responsible for just how much he grew from fistful to once upon a time. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, even in the U S at that time, um, you know, the, the people that were directing movies were people who had come up in, you know, in the movie business, they were not coming, they weren't coming out of school. Yeah. They weren't coming out of film school. You know, that was the next generation. So certainly, you know, for all the people that Leone was the second unit director for, you know, I'm sure he learned, you know, even Victoria De Sica, you know, one of the greatest filmmakers ever. Um, you know, I think uh, certainly Leone had, you know, experience and also, you know, the love for American movies. Yeah. And um, and just, you know, those movies are fantasies. And Italy was a very grim place after World War II. And you only have to watch Bicycle Thieves to see that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, not a not a pleasant place. So I'm sure that you know those films were an escape, you know, for a kid growing up in in post. Well, he would have been. I think he was born in '29, so wouldn't have been so much of a kid. But you know, a young guy um, who was already working in the business, who got the opportunity because of the success of Fistful Dollars, he got the opportunity to make the films that he wanted to make. But he didn't make very many of them. That's the thing. That's the loss. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of in the same way that, you know, John Cazal only did five movies, you know. it was And all were nominated for And all were brilliant, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of them are legendary, you know, apexes of their, of the medium. Yeah. So, yeah. so I guess a final question then. Um, 
any desire to write a straight ahead Western yourself? No, no, and, uh, no. Um, and I, there was a time practically, I'm sure in the past where I did, but the idea of, um, the research that would be necessary daunts me. And I can't think of anything that I would have to do in a, that would only work in a Western. I got you. Now, George, George Pelicanos for years has said he's going to write, write a Western. Oh. Um, and he is a huge fan of um, Once Upon a Time in the West. He's always said, but I, I, I could never, there's just so many things you could get wrong. Yeah. I mean, at one point I wanted to write a book set, you know, in post-war America. And I was daunted by the fact of the, the amount of research that would have to be done. And also the fact that that research is not going to get you everything you need, you know, that there's certain things you're only going to find by talking to people and things like that. So the, the idea of doing something in 1946 was daunting enough. Doing The idea of doing something in 1865 would, was, you know, forget about it. I, there was a, something William Gibson said, and they asked him about why he writes stuff in the set in the future and, and that he said something along the lines of the past has already been and we've lost it. He's like, it's a lot harder to imagine a past than it is to imagine a future. Yeah. Cause you don't have any, yeah, you can do whatever you want. You can write your own future. Yeah. Yeah. And you, yeah, it, it it's almost one chain too many. I don't know. But, oh, pe- people do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it, it, when they pull it off, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, James Elroy's Elroy. first books because they were modern. But when he when he started his L.A. trilogy, I mean, those books really do feel like they're from that period. They don't, you know, there are anachronisms in there, at least so far. Uh, the uh, other one that um, is Lahane's, um, uh, The Given Day and um, Given Day, yeah. Live by Night. Yeah, which he all, he kind of ties up in all kind of the, they're all in the same universe. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, and yeah, you know, there's always a temptation, uh, especially writing something in the prohibition period. Sure. You know, I, w- I would love to do that um, because, um, you know, New Jersey was very, you know, yeah. prohibition in New Jersey and New York is, is a big deal, although it was never enforced. You know, it was full of gangsters and, and, those, and those underworld figures and those underworld gangs um, flourished. You know, they, they took root in America because of prohibition. And when I worked in Newark, New Jersey for 13 years, and whenever I uh, whenever I had to stay overnight there, I would stay at a, a hotel called the Robert Street, which was there were only like three hotels in Newark. And this was the bottom of those three. We <laughs> always stayed there. First of all, because you can get a room for 80 bucks. But also uh, it was where Dutch Schultz lived. Oh, OK. Right before he w- he was living there when he was killed, he'd gone to a, um, a restaurant right around the corner, which became a, was a bagel shop from when I was there for many years. And I just always liked the fact that this was this is this really old hotel that Dutch Schultz had lived in. Was, um, he had been chased out of New York by Thomas Dewey, <clears throat> and he couldn't go back into New York without being arrested, so he set up in Newark. This is all kind. Of, it's there's a fictionalized version of this in, in the book Billy Bathgate, and so I just you know there's something about this ancient hotel where uh, Dutch Schultz had lived that I found kind of appealing as opposed to you know the, whatever the new place was. Um, 
I would, you know, if I had a choice, it's not the place you would have picked, but the historic aspect of it uh, always struck me. So, you know, I'd love to write something in that period. Uh, but again, I don't know. There was, you know, you run the slang, you run in the cars. Sure. Um, and I mean, for what it's so, worth, I would love to read your take on the Dutch Schultz Hotel. <laughs> well, I did start, I did write a short story. I started writing short stories. I have this problem with starting short stories and not getting very far. <laughs> um, I did want to, you know, one of the guys that was convicted of killing Dutch Schultz got out of prison in like the 70s. Okay. Um, and and lived until the 80s. It was, it was, it was crazy. I mean, he was, he was like this bit of a, like American mob history. Uh, so, you know, I was interested, in, and there was a lot of bootlegging going on, and of course, Atlantic City was the whole huge scene, you know, Boardwalk Empire. Yep. Um, you know, there was a lot of that. Um, so, it, you know, the Northeast was the, was the hotbed for the growth of the mob. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted by that idea, but then once I realize how much work it's going to be, I talk myself out of it. <laughs> Many thanks to Wallace for another great chat and for an excuse to revisit one of my, well, not one of them, my favorite film, my favorite film period of all time ever. If this chat brought with it your first viewing of Once Upon a Time in the West, I hope you enjoyed it, that you made it past the first 10 minutes. Um, so yes, yeah, so send me an email, tww.parentheticalrecluse.com, and let me know what you thought about it. And if you haven't watched the film and you're hearing my voice right now, well, yeah. don't blame me for your failure to heed my warnings. As ever, if you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise, my email is because a great email bears repeating, and it just, you know, kind of happens that this is the rhythm I've fallen into after 12 episodes, TWW at parentheticalrecluse.com. You can check out earlier episodes of this show at parentheticalrecluse.com slash TSRpod. And if you enjoy this and those, subscribe via RSS, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast delivery system. See you next time.